The Gucci Girl, Prada Professional, Coach Queen, or Target Trendsetter. No matter how you describe her, she's the most powerful consumer in the country. WebmasterRadio.fm presents Purse Strings. Join marketing to women expert Maria Ritan, principal at Top Sale Strategies, as she chats with those in the know so that your business can grow. Now please welcome our host of Purse Strings, Maria Ritan. Good afternoon and welcome to Purse Strings. I'm Maria Ritan and thanks so much for joining me today. You can catch Purse Strings every Tuesday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Each and every week you'll learn how you and your company can corner the market on the most powerful consumer in the country. The 51% of us who control more than 80% of all the spending. The woman. Well, first up from Social Media Insider, thanks Gavin O'Malley for this little tidbit. Apparently video ads are continuing to show huge revenue generation for the brands that are putting them out there. And of course, the main conduit for that is social media. I know that's not terribly surprising, but we know that video content is king and these stats from eMarketers certainly show it. Um, Stateside, the video ad marketplace is going to grow nearly 30% this year and video will make up 25% of the domestic digital and ad spending for the very first time, which is huge. Now, Facebook-owned properties, including Instagram, will grab a quarter of that spending. Also, not terribly surprising, but if you thought Facebook is dead, it's clearly not because it's capturing so much of that, those eyeballs when it comes to ads. And in fact, eMarketer is expecting Facebook's dominance to continue with double-digit growth through 2020. So it's not dying anytime soon. A new video ad format called in-streaming advertising and Facebook Watch is relatively new, but eMarketer is saying that they think advertisers will increase their usage, excuse me, increase their usage because it's very similar to linear TV advertising. So Facebook's, I mean, not only not dead, but it's also innovating when it comes to advertising. YouTube, even though not your, you know, it's more of not a social network, but clearly it's a place people go for information, is up 17.1% this year. And Snapchat, when we think of Snapchat, we think of millennials, but guess what? They're going to be up in video revenues as well, nearly 19% over last year. Now, Twitter may be struggling a little bit more. They're going to be growing two but only 12 percent this year and in fact eMarketer expects Twitter's tiny slice of the video ad pie to decrease in size by 2020. So if you're thinking of video ad marketing you're going to want to think Facebook for sure it's definitely not dead. Our first profile today is the Nicole Miller Networker, a woman in her late 40s to 50s, self-employed, running her small to mid-sized business, working full-time with children in high school or college. This is a woman who's ambitious and motivated, wanting uh, to get to the top of her career. It's critical that her family thinks that she's doing well. She really is focused on how she spends her time. It's even more than how she spends her money, she thinks, and you should seize opportunities in life. So therefore, She's trying to do things more spontaneously. She sees um, a lot of value in high quality items and it's worth, she says it's worth paying a little bit more to get quality goods. She's open to trying new styles, new things, new shops, and will go out of her way to shop new stores. So where can you find her shopping? Well, a lot of places like Nine West, Williams-Sonoma, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's to name a few. She's driving the Cadillac, Toyota, Volvo, and Lexus. Um, and 
when it comes to media choices, she's reading Entrepreneur, Money Magazine, In Style, First for Women, Better Homes and Gardens, so very eclectic, and even People Magazine. She's watching a lot of cable, including HBO, Food Network, and HGTV as well. Well, my guest today is, uh, I'm going to say, an expert in women, women of our past, and, and, and ironically, a little bit of women who have forecast the future. Andrea Barnett's the author of a recently published book called Visionary Women, How Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, and Alice Waters Changed Our World. Um, she is going to be at the Miami Book Fair coming up November 11th, um, and I'm thrilled to have her on today to really take a look at these women, who they were how they were different, but really the commonalities that bind them together and really the impact that they have uh, had on our world and the way we look at our day. So stick around. Andrea Barnett returns when Purse Strings returns after the break. Purse Strings will be right back after a word from our advertisers. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Her Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Retan. Welcome back to the show. Andrea Barnett is the author of a recently published book, Visionary Women, How Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, and Alice Waters Changed Our World. It's really a story of four visionaries who profoundly shaped the world we live in today. You may know Andrea's work. She's been a regular contributor to the New York Times Book Review for 25 years, and she wrote primarily on the arts and culture with a special concentration on 20th century artistic and literary figures. You may have also seen her journalistic works in publications like Smithsonian, The New York Times, Self, Harper's Bazaar, Elle, and Working Mother, among others. Uh, but it's really, um, this book is the reason I have Andrea on today. And in it, she traces the arc of each woman's career and explores how their work collectively changed the course of history, and they did indeed. And in fact, Andrea will be seen coming up November 11th at the Miami Book Fair, as well as this this book, which will be a, a feature of the Miami Book Fair. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I am sure you get asked this question all the time, but I'm just going to go ahead and ask the obvious. Why did you choose these four women? Because there, there are a lot of remarkable and visionary women throughout history, but why these four? Well, this, this book actually grew out of a conversation I was having with a friend, and I realized that there were four great women, each of whom in 
intriguingly similar in adjacent ways, had changed the way we think about a swath of the world. Rachel Carson about the environment, Jane Jacobs about cities, the life of cities, Jane Goodall about the um, close kinship between animals and us, and Alice Waters about food and eating. And um, all were uncredentialed outsiders. Two weren't even college-educated, which I found fascinating. All were green thinkers before green or eco entered our collective vocabulary. None were ivory tower uh, 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 theorists, um, but they waded into their fields, in the respective fields, and got their hands literally and figuratively dirty, and all faced down powerful um, con- uh, adversaries, and against all odds prevailed. And then probably the most interesting to me was, although there were two, arguably three different generations, they all had their breakthrough moments in the early 60s, just as the culture was changing, just as the second wave of feminism was breaking. So their voices were, um, were had a chance to be heard. And they and they definitely were heard. I mean, I know that um, some of them were treated more kindly after their death than while they were alive. And of course, many of them are still alive. But as you wrote this book, what what surprised you? I mean, besides the fact that two of them weren't college educated. Well, the first thing that really surprised me was that how few um, rights women had in the '60s. I knew that in the '50s. It wasn't a great time for women. But I thought by the 60s, things had opened up. And the fact is, no. I mean, in the early 60s, no woman could get a credit card or credit without a male co-signer. A woman couldn't own uh, prop. If she owned property and then she married, as soon as she married, it was her husband's to do with whatever he wanted to. In many states, she couldn't be in jury duty because she'd been neglecting her domestic duties there were still head and master laws in a lot of states where a, a wife was subject to her, her um, husband's will. There were only 3% of women were doctors, only 6% were lawyers. Very few med schools or law schools even let women in, um, and there were strict quotas if they did. If they wanted a, if they were scientists, they could do what Rachel Carson did, which was to edit the work of male scientists who went out in the field, but women were never sent into the field. If they were, or they could teach. If they were journalists, they could work on the women's pages, but they were always shunted off and had to write about weddings and funerals. Um, and that that was really shocking. The other thing that I hadn't known was that when Rachel Carson was writing Silent Spring, which she began in 1958, she was diagnosed with cancer, and she was dying of cancer as she was writing. She was really racing against time. and But she kept it completely secret because she knew that many of the conclusions she was drawing about the connection between pesticides and chemicals and cancer were um, inflammatory, and she was afraid that the chemical companies would, would say, well, the only reason she's interested in cancer is she's dying of cancer. So that was really surprising. Mm. Oh, and so powerful too to think that she had to keep that a secret. Um, you, you, yeah. you you talk about each of these women had their own areas of expertise. They're they all are from different generations. Although, as you said, their work uh, coming out of the '60s. But what did they have in common besides being somewhat trailblazers? Well, 
what was interesting is, first of all, they were all outsiders. So they had a completely different orientation to their work. They not only saw things differently, but they saw different things. They were keen observers, and maybe because they didn't arrive with any theory or expertise, they looked very closely at the world. They were really discoverers. All of them also were highly intuitive. They trusted their senses, the lived and felt. They were very much grounded in the, in the physical world, which was unusual because at that moment, the world, um, the culture gave priority to ideology and expertise. And these women were very much um, going from their gut. Um, Jane Jacobs w- walked block after block of New York City trying to figure out what made cities work. And she um, she asked people what they thought. She At the time, people thought cities were dying and that the only way to save cities was to knock down huge sections of them, sort of top-down interventions, knock them down and put up high-rise housing surrounded by big open plazas. And so she walked through these high-rise housing um, projects, and she also walked through old neighborhoods. And one day she had a bit of an epiphany, which was that she was in Harlem, and she saw that there was all this life on the street in Harlem in one of the old blocks, whereas in the um, new um, super blocks, there was completely bereft of people, completely dead. And she realized that cities, just like the natural world, had an ecology, a human ecology, and that if you knocked down a whole neighborhood, um, whole cloth, what you did was you destroyed the street life, and that was what connected one neighborhood to the next and, and connected people. And so what she saw was that the city was actually an elaborate web of relationships, an interconnected system. And what's so interesting was um, this was the same thing Rachel Carson was seeing in the natural world as she was mm-hmm. looking at, she, was, she had been a writer about the sea, and she realized you couldn't study any living creature, any sea creature, um, just by itself. You had to understand where it lived, what it ate, what ate it, and how it interacted with its environment. And um, where the men in the world were seeing, it, the men who'd made the world of the 50s were seeing hierarchies and separations. These women were seeing unities and, and connections. The world is sort of a holistic system. No one at that moment was really looking at the big picture. And these women, maybe because they didn't know any better, were, they were seeing the, connected, the connectivity of the living world. And they were, instead of counting and categorizing things, which was sort of the male way. They were mapping relationships. And Goodall was, was doing the same thing. When, when she got to Gombe in uh, Tanganyika, sent there by Louis Leakey with no training at all, she didn't really know what to look for. So she, she'd sit in the, in the forest for hours upon hours waiting for sightings of chimps. And at the time, animals were thought of as kind of clocks. They were mechanistic creatures. They all operated by the same rules. And Goodall, because she didn't know better, started looking for individual personalities at first so she could identify them. And what she began to see was they were very elaborately connected. There were friendships. There were families. There were feuds. And that she saw the, the, the chimpanzees as a whole living web of connections. So that made that was really very different, this kind of connectiveness that these women saw. Um, they also, and this is so important, were all eloquent communicators. 
and communication ultimately is at the heart of change. And they were they were wonderful writers. They used personal anecdote to um, get across their passions and their stories, and it was very compelling. Mm. And, and it's it's interesting that you you talk about how they saw things differently. It was really a paradigm shift, which I, I have to imagine at that time wasn't necessarily welcomed, right? Especially right, a paradigm shift right. coming from the observations of women. I mean, were they met with skepticism? Were they so considered just radical and maybe even crazy that people just kind of fluffed them off? Well, you know, what's interesting is everyday people embraced what they said. It was only the so-called experts who attacked them, and they really did attack them. These women's genius was in a way to name what was hiding in plain sight, to sort of say the emperor has no clothes. Um, Carson's treatment was perhaps the most shocking and extreme. The chemical companies immediately went on the attack, raising a war chest and circling the wagons even before the book was released. They, it had been excerpted in the New Yorker in the summer of 1962, and they saw trouble. They saw their business interests threatened, so much like the tobacco industry later, they immediately began to do everything they could to discredit Carson personally and also her work. She was accused of being a communist sympathizer, of being anti-business, of being a fanatic determined to threaten the nation's food supply. They said her scientific credibility was compromised because she wrote for the public, that she only had a master's degree in zoology. What did she know about chemicals? Um, One manufacturer tried to sue her. And then, of course, there was the problem of her sex, which all of them really had to confront. She was called an hysteric, an overwrought woman who kept cats, a burden bunch Oh, my lover. goodness. Yeah, proof certainly <laughs> that sentiment would always trump reason. Um, and But the most vulgar was that um, by the former Secretary of Agriculture who said, why would a spinster with no children be so concerned about genetics? Which is just so outrageous. Oh, my word. Yeah. And Jacobs was treated a little better, though the critics... Um, for the general press really were praising and, and the public was enthralled. They, When her first article came out, there were more letters of excitement and, and interest than, than, than a Fortune magazine had ever had because people were beginning to feel that these high-rises were, were menacing and dehumanizing and that they changed the scale of the city and that there was no longer human scale and intimacy. She was accused of being a wild bohemian, an anarchist, um, a housewife who lacked credentials, an angry woman with no formal training. I mean, on and on it went. She was she was called a sentimental housefrau. And Goodall had the same kind of treatment when she, um, she was completely dismissed by the scientific community in the beginning. At the first zoological conference she went to, the chair treated her with open hostility. And like both Carson and Jacobs, she was assailed for track of trafficking in anecdote and speculation rather than fact, for framing her arguments using everyday language, God forbid, rather than the dry <laughs> jargon of science. And she was even criticized for writing for the popular audience. Um, so, so they really faced down incredible censure from the professionals, but interestingly not from everyday people because they really spoke to those people. Yeah, and in fact, um, I, I was going to say, it, they they all had a lot of passion and stick to around their ideals, which is so brave, especially in light of everything that you were just described. They were 
thunder from the so-called experts, but they managed to get people to join them. And you talked before about these women being great communicators. I have to imagine that's one of the reasons why they were successful in converting minds and changing behaviors of the mass populace. But they, there probably are other reasons. Yeah, I think I think um, they really understood that people will only protect what they love, and that mm. changing minds really means winning hearts. The culture at that moment was preoccupied with what needed to be eliminated. These women were focused instead on what warranted nurture and saving. They were looking at what was working and why and and trying to reach people on that level. They were very much interested in long-term sustainability of of farmland, city neighborhoods, of natural habitats, of people's health, rather than short-term profitability, which is always the corporate model, kind of growth for the next quarter. And so, you know, Robert Moses was literally blowing up uh, American cities, knocking down whole neighborhoods with no sense of the social fabric that that gives a city its heartbeat. The USDA, in partnership with the chemical companies, was actively working to eliminate entire species, again, with no understanding of how this impacted the larger ecosystem. Industrial farming was stripping the soil of its fertility, polluting water, compromising people's long-term health. Um, all were operating use the same, using the same ta- same kind of short-term thinking. Um, these women were looking at the world using a very different timeline with different values, and they were thinking about both the present and the future, which really spoke to people. Um, they they really understood that if you made the case that that, that this was was it was that we were losing a huge amount, that um, people would understand, and they really did. Yes, it sounds like it spoke, as you said, to their minds and their hearts. We're going to have a quick break, Andrea, but when we come back, I want to fast forward 40, 50 years, right? And let's let's see um, how much change these women have shifted in that time or if we're still struggling to keep up with their ideals. More from Andrea Barnett when we return in just a moment. Her Strings will be right back after a word from our advertisers. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network. We can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Thanks to an exclusive private offer available for a very limited number of companies. But you must act fast. Email brasco at wmr.fm and get your message delivered now. 
Purse Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Ritan. Welcome back. I've been chatting today with Andrea Barnett, the author of a new book called Visionary Women, How Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, and Alice Waters Changed Our World. And it really takes on a deep look at these four visionary women very ahead of their time. And in fact, as Andrea was just saying before the break, um, they were they were assaulted basically by experts in in their fields um, basically denouncing everything that they they were bringing forward and it was a paradigm shift um, in the world at that time if if we can imagine it was the 50s the 60s and the 70s Um, but if we were to fast forward um, we look back and we know these women were sending out red alerts words of warning right about cities about Um, how animals interact and the environment and the food that we're eating. Do you feel that we've heeded those warnings today? Well, of course, that's a hard question, especially now when, as I speak, the EPA has rolled back about 62 Mm -hmm. um, environmental regulations. It's, It's actually why we can't afford to forget what these women said. I think the big takeaway is all social change is a long game we have become much more conscious and that's that's a huge thing and and i think when it comes to environmental chemicals we've been losing on that ground rachel carson would be very distressed to see that um so much has been rolled back um the chemical companies are very shrewd about renaming chemicals once they're banned um changing the formulas i think that the sustainable food uh, movement is alive and well and growing by leaps and bounds and i think so I think Alice's Waters' message has um, is doing very, very well, and their her her whole initiative to get school gardens um, teaching kids the the cycles from seed to to um, to the table is is spreading all over the world, not only in the United States. I think the um, animal animal rights is a kind of mixed bag. They're there, there's more consciousness of that in, about zoos that animals need more, more space. There's less uh, needless testing of animals in in um, medical labs, um, and cities are. I mean, cities are so much more vital and and alive than they were uh, in the 60s when um, Jacob started writing. I mean, they were really dying, but the the pressure of developers is always there, and the the same kinds of things she was arguing. Um, for and against uh, still remain. So I do think our consciousness is is raised. I think that we, you know, as I said, all social change is a long game, and we just, we have to keep remembering and working to, to, um, to fulfill what these women started. Well, and you mentioned earlier the fact that they were women also was a cause to pause for a lot of the men in charge at the time. I'm just curious if you think this book arrives at a very auspicious time, continuing, um, you know, considering our political climate, which you referred to before about the EPA rollbacks, but also the continued effort to silence women's voices or at least denounce their truths. I do. Um we have an enormous need for female role models right now, and these women very much change the face of the possible. You can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, they were passionate and unapologetic about what mattered to them. They displayed enormous moral clarity. They had a real instinct for inclusiveness and a, a, a commitment to making the world a better place. And I, 
And I do think, I do take great heart in the girls who have been organizing for the Marjorie Stonewall, Stonewall Douglas High School mm-hmm. against gun control, about the clean air organization around Flint, in Flint, Michigan. I think that these kind of role models are so needed, and I think that um, we can't hear enough of women's voices. They do have a bit of a different orientation, a little bit more nurturing and long-term than, than as I said, the corporate model. Um, I think that um, the the other thing is that women have a different way of communicating. Um, all of these women made arguments that were very accessible. They, they, they eschewed technical jargon. They put a human face on complex questions. And I think right now we're seeing a lot of female politicians doing that too, or at least females who are running for office. They're, they're saying, you know, we can do this. We can do this together. We can organize and do this together. So I think that um, it's it's a really important moment to read about women who have truly changed the face of what's of what's possible. Mm-hmm. And I think to remind ourselves that it can be done again today, right? That it's we're yeah. not too far gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that they they that the big takeaway that we can learn from these women is that one voice, especially an eloquent voice, can really make a difference, and that power emerges by organizing around a problem, which all of these women did. They were very specific. And that also the importance of bottom-up organization and advocacy of going local, which they were very savvy about doing. These women were change agents, and they were so because they they were very good at reaching people. And um, it's a really great model for all of us who want to see change to follow. Well, and I encourage everyone to pick up your book, too, because I think there's there's so much in that book we can't even get to today because we, of course, have run out of time. But yeah. remind, uh, remind everybody where they can purchase your book. So you could go to my website, andreabarnett.com, and there are four tabs where you can buy the book, every place from Amazon to, for, directly to my publisher. Um, I'll be at the Miami Book Fair. You can buy books there. And you can always go to your local indie bookstore and ask them to order it if they don't have it. I'd love to support indie bookstores. But, um, yeah, so I would say the first is my website. Perfect. And, Andrea, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for. For, uh, talking to me. And everyone, again, go to Andrea Barnett, B-A-R-N-E-T dot com to learn more about Andrea. And also you can order your books directly there. Or if you happen to be in the Miami area starting November 11th, stop by the Miami Book Fair and you can meet her in person. Thanks to my producer, George, and join me next week for another edition of Purse Strings, 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Until then, make it a great one. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.